Thank you for listening to the New Life Church podcast. If you need any information about our church or if you'd like to give online, please visit us at newlifekingman.com. Spirit to be in this study, God, in this meeting. And Father, we give you all the glory and all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, if you are joining us uh, in person, we are very glad that you're here. If you are joining us online, we are very glad that you are joining us online. And uh, uh, we do count it a great privilege to be able to share with you. This has been a study that I have wanted to do for quite some time. And I will be honest with you, um, this has uh, served to flex some of the study muscles, if you will, to dust off some of my books and different references and different things and put things together. So it's, it's flexed some of those skills a little bit, and it's been good for me. I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed the, the process. And so it's, it's been a really good thing. And I think everybody from the comments I got last week, everybody really enjoyed last week's, and, and it was uh, um, effective and rich. And I know that there's no way that we can ever cover all of the information and facts and facets of Holy Spirit. It would take a lifetime uh, is the reality of that. But uh, uh, we've chosen to dive into uh, the baptism with the Holy Spirit and to see how that applies to us today and what the Word of God says. I will make one disclaimer uh, to you. If you are looking at my notes, which you all have a set of my notes, basically those notes are kind of a, uh, for the lack of a better term, a little stripped down, not all of the comments that I make and not all, there's some notes in there that are just for me to remind me of certain things and whatnot. So I take all that out. But those notes that you have come directly from mine. And so if you see typos, misspell words, uh, wrong punctuation, capitalization, I blame it on the computer. I blame it on the computer because spell check or grammar check or uh, English 101 didn't get done. So, uh, so anyway, if you do see that, please forgive me and just be patient. I, I try to do the best I can. Also, I, I, I'm going to make this disclaimer before we get started. Uh, some of this information is a lot bigger in its presentation than I first had anticipated. And so tonight is actually one of those nights. Last week I told you that we were going to look at, two, look at uh, answering two questions. Uh, the, question, the first question being, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit for us today? And secondly, uh, what is the evidence of the baptism in the Holy Spirit? And so, to be honest with you, we're only going to get done with question one. So that's just kind of the way the cookie crumbles. Can you say Amen. So last week, we began our study by understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to do is just for a few minutes, just a couple minutes, I want to take a moment and just review what we talked about so that we can kind of set the stage. Remember, what we are doing is we are building a foundation. Right now in this study, these first couple uh, lessons really are foundational. 
Uh, maybe next week or the week after, we're going to start building the walls and things are going to start looking a lot bigger and, and more pretty, as, as it were, uh, or more enticing. Um, if you know anything about construction, uh, the foundation process, the dirt work, that's not the fun part. Usually it costs a lot of money and you go down before you go up. And so it's just the way it is. But without a good foundation, things don't last. Can you say amen to that? And so I want to just make sure that our foundation is solid here. And so we began by reading Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and then verse 8. And the Bible says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8, he says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And the first thing that we saw in this text was really the essence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And the essence of the Holy Spirit, or the essence of the the gift of the Holy Spirit, if you will, is power. That's the whole thing. He says, Jesus tells us, he says, I want you to wait for power. That's what I want you to do. I want you to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to wait for power. And I want you to wait on the Holy Spirit because you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then the second thing that we saw is that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a fulfillment of a promise that goes all the way back into the Old Testament. We talked about Joel, the book of Joel. In Joel chapter 2, the prophet prophesies about the last days, and he tells uh, uh, his audience that in the last days that God was going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And then what we did is we saw that Peter, after the initial baptism in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, He stands up and preaches, and he speaks to the people that are listening, and he says to them, men and brethren, this is that which the prophet Joel prophesied. And and the interesting thing, and I want to kind of sow this seed into you, notice that he didn't say this is the fulfillment or the end of the promise, but what he was saying is this is the beginning, this is that. It's happening, and it's been happening since then. Can you say amen to that? Then what we did is we took a few minutes and we discussed the difference between the baptism in the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And what we said is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation and the baptism of the believer in the Holy Spirit are two very different things. And while they can happen simultaneously, They are two very different things because Scripture clearly describes the work of the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion, and the Holy Spirit comes in regenerating power. He makes his presence known as an inner witness to the believer and gives them the new status as a child of God. And the Holy Spirit, when he uh, baptizes, he, he baptizes us into the, into the body of Christ. So what we said is the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation, he has a baptism, he baptizes us into the body. 
And then when we are baptized into the Holy Spirit, we are now being baptized into the Holy Spirit by Jesus, and we are spiritually immersed into the Holy Spirit, empowered for his purposes, and we are given supernatural gifts that help us to accomplish those purposes. Can you say amen? So that's kind of the the background of what we talked about last week. Now, tonight we're going to move on, and we're going to answer a very important question. And that question is this, is the baptism in the Holy Spirit for us today? Now, the reason that I believe that it's important that we answer this is because there is controversy around this, because there is a segment of Christianity that does not believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for today. And so there are those that will tell you that that is not biblical. And so we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. Can you say amen? And I want to make a clear statement to you before we continue on with this lesson as why we need this is because not only do we need a genuine understanding of the baptism in the Holy Spirit, but we need a genuine experience with and a lifestyle in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe. No doubt in these last days where spirituality is being challenged, even hijacked and in some cases changed into something that it's not, even among Christians, and where there is uncertainty in everyday life that seems to dominate, there is no greater need then right now there is no greater need for you and I to be brought under the full influence of the Holy Spirit so that we would not only have the Spirit in us at salvation, but have the manifestation of the Spirit working through us daily. Anything short of that limits us, and it mars the, mars the graciousness of God's plan for our lives. Can you say amen to that? The, overwhel- the overwhelming need today is need for instruction in the Holy Spirit that will inspire faith and will bring the church back to the place where every member of the body of Christ will again realize that the work of God is accomplished not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. The old prophet Zechariah said that in Zechariah 4.6. That is so true for us today. We need that, church. We need to be a people that are baptized in his power. So with that said, let's dive into our lesson. And again, here's the question. Is the baptism in the Holy Spirit for us today? Now, in answering that question, what I want to do is I want to take some time and I want to share with you some very powerful concepts that I believe will help us better understand the answer to this question. So, let me just answer it clearly and concisely. Is the baptism in the Holy Spirit for today? Absolutely yes, it is for today. 
In fact, let me just say this, just kind of a little bit of a a detour. Some estimate right now that as many as 660 million believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know how they get that statistic. I'm not exactly sure who has the, you know, the counter that's going out counting, but I am certain that they have some metric that they use that they can develop at least some semblance of accuracy. But we know it's a lot because we know that God is doing something around the world. Can you say amen? We hear testimonies all the time of great moves of God where people are literally being changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is not a little thing that God has done in some corner of the world somewhere, nor is this a phenomenon that is strange or rare or odd. God is doing something supernatural in these last days. He is pouring out his spirit on all flesh, just as Joel prophesied. Now, as we look at the answer to this question, you must understand, and I want to make this very clear today, we cannot base our understanding or base our um, answer on personal experience or even the experience of millions of people around the world. We have to base our understanding of this answer on the Word of God. And that's where we're going to today. So in Acts chapter 2, this is our text for this lesson. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 39, reading from the um, ESV version. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is Peter just finishing preaching. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, we read that scripture last week, but this is also a proof text for this week, and it is a definitive proof text for me that the baptism is, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is for today because of this one sentence, for the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. The promise is for everyone. First and foremost, this was not restricted to the apostles. It was not. It was for everyone, clearly stated. This promise is for everyone and everyone's children. So one could assume at this point that everyone that is there hearing his voice, the baptism was for them. Some of those people weren't even saved yet. But the baptism, the promise is for them. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not going to come until they receive Christ, and he tells them that. He, he goes on and explains that all to them. But what we can do in this is we can see it's least for them. And then he says, and your children, so the next generation. And then he goes, and all who are afar off. This is a reference not to distance from where they were in location, but this is a reference to time because of the statement that says, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. 
So this is a reference to God's calling that's moving in time. Can you see that today? So that's what he's saying. And so then he goes on, and I, I, I want to show you this. This, this is uh, another text that we've talked about before, but in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, and it says, And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Notice, he found disciplined learners. These are disciples of who? Christ. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He's using very um, real Christian lingo here, isn't he? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, in what, in, in what then were you baptized? So he said, into John's baptism. Then Paul says, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul, so they're baptized again, whatever the decision-making was there. But then after that, when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. What's the point of this? This encounter transpired 25 years after the day of Pentecost. Notice that Paul's concern when he speaks to these people is not about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He didn't come to them and say, hey, do you guys got the Holy Spirit living in you? Right? He wasn't concerned about that. He found some disciples. These were guys that were disciplined learners. He says, when, what baptized, what, what, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Okay? He's not, he's not coming to them and saying, hey, I got to make sure you got the indwelling and you guys are, are saved. This is not his concern. But his concern is, were they baptized with the Holy Spirit? And, uh, uh, which is an encounter that came after salvation, and we established that last week. But this presence comes, or this, this dynamic happens to show us that this is moving in time. That this is not isolated to one season. Now, as we move on, I want you to consider this for a moment, and I don't want to dwell here long, but, but it's probably going to be a little bit longer than we, we, we really want. But unfortunately, this evening, there are many believers that have been taught the doctrine, and I'm going to use a really fancy word. So are, are you guys ready? The doctrine of cessationism. Cessationism is the doctrine that teaches that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts that come with it have ceased with the apostolic age. Now, at first, to be honest with you, I'm going to put out another disclaimer. At first, I was just going to just brush across this. But as I began to study and begin to do this and put this together, the direction of the Lord really began to come through to me. And so I spend a little bit more time in this. And I want you to, I really want you to get this because I think we need to see this because this is often brought up among Christian circles. This isn't brought up among, you know, unbelievers. This is brought up among Christians. One of the underlying arguments that is used to prop up this doctrine is that no one should teach from 
or make doctrine by studying historical books of the Bible, like the book of Acts. That's, that's one of the tenets or one of the beliefs of cessationists. Now, what we need to know about the Bible, you don't get, get to pick and choose which parts you believe. If you want to be a New Testament believer and experience biblical Christianity, you must study, understand, and apply the whole counsel or the whole word of God. Can you say amen? It is completely inspired, all of it. Even the begats are inspired by the Holy Spirit all of the historical parts, such as the book of Acts and other books, and nowhere in the Bible does it say that a doctrine can only come from certain books in the Bible. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.6 says exactly the opposite of that. It says all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. In fact, in the King James, I believe it says, for doctrine and reproof. Okay? So if all Scripture is inspired, then all of it is useful for teaching. So right off the gate, the first prop, if you will, the first leg of the stool that holds up cessationism doesn't work. Another argument of cessationism or the cessationistic Doctrine is that the apostolic age lasted only until the Apostle John died around 100 AD. If you remember the Apostles, the Apostle John, he was the only one that was not killed by martyrdom. He was boiled in oil. That, that's pretty horrific. But he didn't die, and I'm not sure which is worse, living through boiling in oil or, or, or being dying of it. I'm not certain. But Nonetheless, he lived to a ripe old age. And they believed that the apostolic age uh, was so short due to the fact that there were only 13 apostles. Now, I'm going to go real slow here because I want you to catch this. The cessationist doctrine believes that there were only 13 apostles. The original 11, because Judas X'd himself out, right? And then Matthias was picked to replace Judas so that they became 12 again and then the Apostle Paul. They believe that when uh, uh, they passed, they believed when these men, these apostles, the original 12 and the Apostle Paul passed, the need for baptism in the Holy Spirit and the gifts were gone. The need for it was gone. The church had been established. It's up and moving, and it's running. We don't need that anymore. They believed the baptism with the Holy Spirit was reserved for that season only so it could jumpstart the church. And they believed only the apostles could steward. Now listen to what I'm saying. Only the apostles could steward the baptism and the gifts since there were only 13 of them, the baptism had to pass at their passing. Does that make sense? Now listen, this argument is hinged on the validity of the office of apostle being bestowed on other people. That is to say, cessationists believe today there are no apostles. It is also to say there was no apostles 
other, other than the 12 and the Apostle Paul. Does that, are you hearing what I'm saying? So this leg of the argument is hinged on the fact that they do not believe the office of apostle is no longer in effect, nor do they believe that anyone else. But again, Scripture defies that. Look at Acts chapter 14, verse 14. But when the apostles, and notice it's plural, Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out. Are you hearing what that's saying? He says, this, this whole thing is, is here, here is uh, Paul and Barnabas and the description of them. It would be like if Pastor Alex and I were somewhere, let's say we were in Africa doing a conference, and they said, yep, the pastors, John and Alex, came to Ghana to do a conference. That structure of sentence and communication would automatically assume that John and Alex are the pastors that are doing the conference. Does that make sense? So I, I know I'm taking my time and maybe kind of spend a little time here, but I want you to get this because the scripture is clear. And I'm reading from the New King James, and I can assure you if, if, you, have, if you have any trouble with translations, the King James says it the same way. Okay, but when the apostles, Paul, Barnabas and Paul, so Barnabas was considered an apostle. And then we can go on and we can look at 1 Thessalonians. Now, there, there, there is a whole passage. It's the whole first chapter of 1 Thessalonians and part of the second chapter. Now, I'm not going to read all of that, but I'm just going to read the, the verses that are important to this. So in 1 Thessalonians 1.1, it sets the tone. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are writing, they are co-authors, this is a message from those three people to the church of Thessalonica. Am I, you hold water so far? Yeah. Then if you go to chapter 2, verse 1, it says, you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. So the reason I brought that up is because this thought of the three. He says, our coming. So he's writing to them and he's reminding them of their recent visit. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy had been there and now they're writing back and he says, our coming. Does that make sense so far? So the reference in Scripture, in context, is of the three. 1 Thessalonians 2.6 Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or for, for, from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. In other words, what he's saying, he goes, you know that we didn't come seeking glory. We didn't come looking for something from you. Although, because we are apostles, we could have. Would be another way to phrase that. So now we have Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So now we have Barnabas, Silvanus, and Timothy that are considered apostles. And then the most direct passage that deals with this is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Ephesians is being written to the church in Ephesus. 
which we look at the book of Ephesians as a book that instructs the church today in Christian living, right? If you've ever taken any time to do even a cursory study of the book of Ephesians, you'll quickly see that Paul, as he's writing this, he's writing to Christians on how to live their life. And he says in verse 11, it says, and he, sa- and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So somehow, in that list, the cessationist group believe apostles and prophets have been done away with, but evangelists, pastors, and teachers still exist. I'm just not sure that that is rightly dividing the word of truth, okay? I am not here. Look, at I honor those people. I respect them. Some of those guys that, 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 that teach and, and do, I know they love God. They are saved. They love Jesus. They're living for God. They are good men and women of God. Okay, and so this is not me wanting to slam them or assault them or come against them in any way. I highly respect them, and one day we're going to share heaven together. Okay, what I'm saying is, I'm saying that this doctrine, when you look at Scripture, does not hold up well. Okay, and so the final argument, and this was amazing to me, so that's the second leg now, there's, like, let me just say this. There's probably a lot of arguments. But these are the three main ones that seem to hold up the doctrine of cessationism. The final argument, and I am, like I said, I'm sure there are, there are more, but these are the most common, comes out of 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. It says, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there are, where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. Now the idea here is that since we now have the Bible, this is the cessationist point of view, now that we have the Bible in its entirety, all else is unnecessary. We don't need the gifts, we don't need the prophecies, we don't need this extracurricular, so to speak, dynamic that came with Holy Spirit in the beginning days of the church. That's the thought. Now that would be true if the phrase, that which is perfect, was in fact a reference to the Bible. But I don't believe it is a reference to the Bible, and I'll tell you why. I'll show you why. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, 11, and 12, the next two verses. He says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. The entire context of these verses is what we call a now and then statement. Now represents this life. Then represents our life in heaven. The statement, I shall know just as I am known, is a statement about our entrance. I shall be known as I am known in heaven. 
It's then. It's not now. So when you take this all back and you look at this, you start seeing, wait a second, for, in, for we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is, perfect to come, which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. What is perfect? It is the entrance of Christ that comes to take the church into heaven. That which is perfect. Okay, because the other side of the coin is that prophecy, okay, let's go with it. Prophecies are gone, tongues are gone, but knowledge isn't gone. So just two out of the three? It doesn't, so what happens is when, when the scripture gets really choppy like that, and so all of a sudden you start looking and you say, okay, but when is this going to happen? When is this passing away? When is this ceasing? When is this vanishing? It's when that which is perfect. Okay, that which is perfect is the word of God. Or I'm sorry, is Jesus, not the word of God. You say, okay, I'm with you a little bit, but you're going to have to go a little further. You have to prove it. But then face to face, Have you ever been face-to-face with a Bible? It's talking about an encounter with Christ in heaven. Are you with me so far? So the entire context of these verses is this now and then, about right now, and about then. Okay? So the age of the church is now. The age of heaven is then. Now, we still see dimly. Does anybody here have it all together? You see completely clear. All questions answered. No confusion, no misunderstanding, no gaps. Anyone? Please, because if you are, you need to teach this class. And I say that in jest. I'm just joking with you. The point is, this is the point. I know that there is controversy around the baptism. And once again, I'll, I'll do this as another unfortunately. Because unfortunately, those that have been given the, this precious, wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit have also gone off into extremes, and because of misinformation or the lack of instruction or the ignoring of Scripture and how it is to function within the church and in the believer, they have gone off into places and and ways that have distorted, if you will, the purpose and the the power and the, the grace and the goodness of the Holy Spirit, and so it's left a bad taste in people's mouths. And, and I, I know, I, I, I've, I've been there. I've seen things. I've seen the abuses. I've seen, I've, I've witnessed them. But what we cannot do, because, just because there is abuse, we can't throw out the truth. Okay? It's, I'll go back to Pastor Harry's statement. The antidote to abuse is instruction in proper use. And so what we need to do is rather than being afraid of the reality of the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives, we need to learn and embrace him 
and let him show us who he is. I guarantee you, church, this, now this does come out of my experience, but I, I believe it's backed up in the Word of God. I just don't have the Scriptures for it. I can tell you the Holy Spirit is a gentleman. And I can tell you that he is not going to do with you and move in you in such a way that is going to bring you... To say that he won't make you feel uncomfortable is wrong. But to humiliate you and embarrass you, he won't. Amen. He will make your flesh feel uncomfortable. <laughs> your flesh is going to feel a little weirded out. But he's not going to humiliate you. He's not going to put you in a position where uh, you are looking like a fool. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Okay. Does anybody have any questions thus far? I believe it's important, and I know originally, and I had even said it during our staff meeting the other day, yesterday, I said, yeah, probably not going to touch that very much. I'm just not going to talk about that a lot. And then as I was working on it today and, and, and studying it through, I just as I was going through that, I just got on this track and I felt like, you know what, I want to arm you with the truth when people come to you, if, if somebody should come to you and say, hey, what about this? Now what you could do is go, oh, no, 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 wait a second. I could take you back to some scriptures that can show you something. Not just, hey, you know, my pastor said, please don't do that. You know, I, I, I'm glad that you have confidence in me, and I appreciate that. But it, it, I am not the authority. The authority is the Word of God. So you take them back to the Word. You can say, my pastor showed me in the Word. That's okay. But take them back to the authority of the Word that says, look, it, this, is, this is how we see it. This is how we see it. Does that, does that make sense? Let me say this before we go into our next uh, 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 step here. Um, talking about fear. One of the things, and I've said this on several occasions in church, and I've said it from the pulpit, one of the things that we cannot do was we cannot allow ourselves to move into a place of fear where we are more afraid of the devil's ability to corrupt than we are confident of God's ability to keep. Okay. Now, I, what, that, what that does not mean, what I am not saying, is that you throw everything to abandon and everything to the wind and, you know, everything goes and you just go and, hey, God's going to take care of me. No, that's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, is that if you will submit yourself to the Word of God, submit yourself truly to Him, and truly ask Him for, your, for His leading, He will lead you. And He will guard you and protect you. And He will keep you. And, and as, you, as you become more and more and more familiar with Holy Spirit's voice and His moving... You will, you will be able to sense his triggers when he will trigger you and say, whoa, 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 stop. You'll hear it. You'll go, oh, wow, we got to pay attention to that. Back up. And sometimes you'll even hear it at church. <laughs> you'll even go, whoa, 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 we got to. And, and you know what the great thing is? He won't just go, whoa, stop that. He'll actually give you a strategy to make a difference in it. And usually church, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's not you confronting, it's you taking it back in prayer and getting a hold of God 
for that circumstance so that he can move in it. Are you seeing what I'm saying? That's how Holy Spirit works. So let's move on. So Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our example for everything that pertains to the Father in heaven and the kingdom of God and living in the kingdom. Jesus told us many times he came to reveal the Father and to declare the kingdom. And he showed us what it's like to live in right relationship with the Father, full of the Holy Spirit. And listen, and the mystery of Christ is this. And there is no one on the planet that can explain it outside of just surface view. The mystery of Christ is he is in fact fully God and fully man. He's not a God-man. Some people think, oh, he's like Zeus. He's half man, half God. That's a myth. Jesus is not a myth. And the mystery of Christ is that he is 100% God, and he is 100% man. And beyond that, I don't know that we can explain it. Now, even though Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit, it was still necessary for the Holy Spirit to descend upon him at his baptism in water. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Some say, it never says anywhere that Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And I totally agree. There is nowhere, if you read from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Revelations 22, whatever the last verse is, you'll never find that statement, Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit. You will not find those words. But when we understand what baptism means, and baptism comes from a Greek word that means to immerse or to submerge or to be overwhelmed, and so when we get baptized in water, we are surrounded by water. Your whole body is immersed in water. It's like taking a t-shirt. If we take a shirt and we stick it in the wash machine, the shirt would be immersed or baptized, and we could describe the shirt as being full of water, or water is upon it, or it is in the water. And it's the same thing with Jesus. All I know is that when it talks about Jesus, it often talks about him being full of the Spirit because he is our supreme example. Now, Luke chapter 4, verse 1 is a verse that transpires right after his baptism. It says then, remember what we read in Matthew 3, he was, uh, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove upon him. God the Father spoke over him, this is my beloved Son. Then it says in Luke 4, 1, then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's interesting to me that Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, has a designation in Scripture as being filled. Which the implication is, 
There was not a filling at that moment. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Luke 4.14 says, Then Jesus returned from that event in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And then verse 18, same chapter, he says, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and on and on. And so what we see in this is we see it's at this point where Jesus is beginning this public ministry that the first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit falls upon him. Do you see that? And then the statement in Scripture is that he is now full of the Holy Spirit and he's anointed. See, God wants to fill you up with himself. That's what he wants to do. Like a shirt soaking in a wash machine. The Holy Spirit wants to be on you. He, he, he wants to be in you. He wants to flow through you. And he wants you to be full of him. Jesus ministered in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he was the only begotten son of God. He was fully God and fully man. Now, that is a whole study, and I would love to do that with you one day, is the, the reality of what that means. But in short, what it means is that Jesus, while he was on this earth, chose to live not by his divine nature, but by his human nature. And so if he chose to live by his human nature, then his human nature needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. His divine nature is the Holy Spirit. And once again, I don't know that anyone could adequately describe to you what all that means, except to say that's the mystery of Christ. But his human nature needed Holy Spirit, and he needed to be in right relationship with his Father. And so the question is, when you look at the evidence that comes against baptism today, and you find out that it falls apart pretty quickly in Scripture, and you look at the evidence that this is the example of Jesus, and last week we saw that this was also the example of the disciples, that they needed that power to accomplish what God called them to do, then how much more do we in this generation need exactly that? Does everybody see that? Now, as we close this down, and I'm not going to go a whole lot into this. I, I really put a lot of this in because I generally don't rely on this kind of stuff. I just think it's interesting. To be honest with you, I was going to end the Bible study at this point, but I decided to put this in so that you could read it later and you can do your own investigation. Uh, but... Uh, Throughout history, Holy Spirit has been active, and history records for us. So if you looked at the baptism of the Holy Spirit during the early centuries, there was a guy by the name of Irenaeus who was a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of John. Polycarp was the pastor of the church that's mentioned in Revelation called Smyrna. Okay, so, th this, so this is how far we are. So now you have, you have the disciple of the disciple of the apostle. 
pretty cool, isn't it? I, that, that's the kind of history. I like that kind of history. And he wrote that he followed John the Apostle. He is quoted as saying, uh, we hear many brethren in the church having prophetic gifts and speaking in all sorts of languages through the Spirit. And he lived between 115 and 220 A.D. Terillion, who lived between 160 and 220, refers to spiritual gifts, including speaking in tongues, being uh, in operation in the churches. Churches, Justin Martyr, living at the same time, confirms the fact. Origen, who lived between 185 and 254, wrote of speaking in tongues not as a gift to oneself, but as an obligation to the people to whom the gospel was being preached. Augustine, in the 4th century, reportedly said, we still do what the apostles did when they laid hands on the Samaritans and called down the Holy Spirit on them. It is expected that converts should speak with new tongues. Then you move into the Middle Ages. The Encyclopedia Britannica states that speaking in tongues reoccurs in Christian revivals throughout the 13th century. Then you move into the 16th century, and you have guys like Francis Xavier, who died in 1552, preached to the Hindus in their own language with never having heard it. To Chinese merchants, he encountered in Chinese without knowing the language and groups of different nations so that each one heard him speak his own language. Louis uh, uh, Bertrand uh, had gifts of tongues, of prophecy, and of miracles, and this is in the 1500s. And he's, uh, he is said to have converted 30,000 South, America, South American Indians of different tribes and languages in three years, uh, three years without having learned their languages. In the 17th century, you've got people like George Fox and the Quakers and all of that. The Quakers, the reason they call them Quakers is because they quaked under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So be careful, you might be a Quaker. In the 18th century, John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, joined his friend George Whitfield in Bristol, and when they preached in, open, in the open air to coal miners, though the powerful, uh, through the powerful preaching of these two men, thousands were saved. The Spirit of God worked in their listen, listeners, and many, many cried out, fainted, and had convulsions. I don't know. Makes me go, hmm. In the 19th century, D.L. Moody visited Great Britain, and the Holy Spirit was poured out on young men at the YMCA in Sutherland. And in his revivals in New England, the gifts of the Holy Spirit were manifest with D.L. Moody. In 1875, there was a Pentecostal outpouring in Providence, Rhode Island, where many were healed. 1892, uh, a revival which lasted several hundred years started in Swedish Mission Church of Morshed, Minnesota, and spread to the surrounding towns. And then, of course, we all know, I love this story, and I'll take the time to read this and we'll be done. In, in, uh, this is in the 20th century. In the year 1900 at the Bethel College in Topeka, Kansas, a number of students started searching the scriptures and concluded that speaking in tongues was the bi- biblical evidence for baptism of the Holy Spirit. After a period of time spent in prayer, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. They spoke in tongues and glorified God. Interpretations were given and healings took place. The following year, these students moved to different cities and the revival began to spread throughout the state of Texas. In 1905, a Bible school was 
was held at Houston, and about 50 workers were sent out. One of these workers was a holiness preacher, and he was invited to preach in Los Angeles. Thereafter, he prayed nightly with a small group in a private house, and on April 9, 1906, the power of God fell so that those gathered were baptized in the Spirit. By the next morning, the whole city was stirred. People came from everywhere. The sick were healed. Sinners were saved. They were moved to a large, empty building, which was basically a barn, on Azusa Street, and meetings daily and night for three years. Thousands of people all over the country, actually it should say the world, attended the meetings. Upon their return home, they witnessed to what they had seen and heard, and the result that hungry souls began to wait before the Lord, and they also received the same Pentecostal empowerment, and that right revival has not stopped. So, so I know today that there, we have both empirical evidence in Scripture that we can witness, and we also have historical evidence that we can come and accept. And so the point is, in my mind, based on Scripture, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, in fact, for today. So real quick, we're I wonder if there's... Jason has got the microphone, and so if you have a question... Uh, raise your hand and he'll come right to you. We, we're doing this so the folks that are watching online can hear your question and then also everybody in the room can hear your question. So does anybody have a question? If you're brave enough to raise your hand. Right there. Our young lady here. She's always got a question. I me. always have a question. Okay. My first experience with the Holy Ghost was down at the old church. And sitting behind me was Jackie Bowers. And, man, did it freak me out, because I had never heard anything like that. So I'm looking at my husband. I'm like, hey, uh, what's going on? He goes, shh, we're going to get the interpretation. It's okay. I'm like, whoa, this is weird. So interpretation came. Anyways, and we had a lot of that going on down there. It changed up here. Are we going to start praying for people to get the Holy Ghost and stuff like that? Again, Absolutely. is that our goal? Because I goal. really would like to see that. Yes. That is actually, that's the, that's the whole point of what we're doing. Somebody else got a question? Question. Yes, ma'am, all the way there in the back. If I don't see you right away, just keep your hand up because the lights kind of blind me. You said a scripture, um, it says, all scripture is God breath and for teaching. I was just wondering what scripture that was from. It's out of Timothy. Yes. Let me just get you the right location here. I really liked it, so I just wanted to write it down. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Thank you very much. Yep. Someone else? Question. Going once. Going twice. Gone. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you listening to me. I hope, I really do hope this has been useful for you and that you've learned something. Once again, I I thank you. I appreciate that. But I will say... um, Look at I, 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 
I'm not trying to downplay play anything or trying to just be humble here, I, but I actually mean this. I'm not saying that I have a corner on all of this. I, I'm still a student of the Word, and I'm still learning and growing. Um, but I can tell you that, that I have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I could tell you that it is real and that it, it's effective and that it has uh, changed my life in ways that, that I can't completely articulate just because there are no words for it. Uh, but I don't want, I really, my heart, I could tell you this uh, for a surety, my heart is I don't want to just come to you and say uh, the baptism is real because I say so. Um, I, I want you to understand Scripture, and I'm certain there's probably teachers that can give you more Scripture, uh, but this is what I saw. This is how God led me in this. And so next week, what we're going to do is we're going to answer the question because, again, this is a pretty lengthy question because it, it has some meat to it. Is, uh, the question is, what is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And again, that tends to be a little bit controversial. And so we will deal with some of the, the, the issues in that, but we will once again go through Scripture as it, as it says it and look at it for what it's worth. Amen? And so, and if you do come up, if you're studying these notes on your own, because I am giving you the copies, if you, if you see something you don't understand, write it down, come see me, give me a call, whatever, and I'll, I'll try to do my very best to help you. Amen? Why don't we uh, close in a word of prayer and we'll let you guys get out of here. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. And God, we just glorify you and we thank you for the truth of your word. And, and Lord, we, uh, uh, we just ask your blessing and your favor, God, upon this group of people and this whole church, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Praise God. God bless you guys. Have a great, great night. Thank you for listening to the New Life Kingman podcast. We can't wait to see you next week.